happy Feast of Tabernacles to you. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, when you came in, you walked through a sukkah. And you probably, probably still don't know what I'm talking about. But in Leviticus 23, God said, these are my appointed times. And he gave the Israelites seven feasts to remind them, be waypoints for them. And the last of those seven feasts is tabernacles. The first of those seven feasts is Passover. I, th- I find it fascinating that here we are in Passover week in Scripture, and we're going to see the Passover lamb crucified here in just a little while, being Jesus, being that Passover lamb. And we also find ourselves figuratively, or I guess literally, um, in the season of tabernacles. So the, both the first and the last are right here together. Now, if you don't know much about tabernacles, it's actually something that was um, given to the Israelites while they were still wandering in the wilderness. And he says, when you get into the promised land, which again, it was a assurance, you're going to get there. And when you get to the promised land, I want you to celebrate this feast by putting up sukkahs, which is actually a tent. And it's like a very makeshift tent. There was a lot of specifics about it. It can't have a covering that, that blocks your view of the sky because part of what you do is you look at the sky and you see the stars at night and you're reminded that God made a promise to Abraham that your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. It has to be made out of organic materials that can't be made sturdy. Matter of fact, a strong wind should knock it down. And the reason is it reminds them of the fragility of life and how we are weak, yet we are strong when we lean against God. So a lot of them would actually build their sukkahs and connect it to their permanent dwellings. And it reminded them of a time where they were in the wilderness and they wandered around and they lived in tents while they were there. But it also reminds them that God also came and dwelt with them and he lived in a tent too, and it was called the tabernacle. And so God came and dwelt with his people. Of course, John opens up his gospel saying that Jesus came and tabernacled among us. Again, it's this picture of God coming in human form. And Paul calls these bodies that we walk around in, he calls them tents, these earthly tents that we have. And so we are sojourners in these tents that God has given to us. And one day we will walk into the promised land and it will be a permanent picture. But until we get there, we are reminded that God also came and dwelt with us in a tent. And that is in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we see the gospel unfolding here towards the end of the gospel of John, we see the purpose in which Jesus came to fulfill. And that was to be a sacrifice for us, to take care of our sin problem. If our greatest need was finances, God would have sent a financial advisor. If our greatest need was entertainment, God would have sent an entertainer, but our greatest need was sin. And so God sent a savior to save us from that sin. And that's what we've seen unfolding in the gospel of John. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles also not only talks about what happened in the past, but it's a picture of what we have ahead of us in the future. It reminds us that there is an eternal experience that we will all have, whether in the presence of God or separated from him for eternity. Uh, Feast of Tabernacles prefigures that day. There's a day of judgment when God makes all things that were wrong right. And he separates the sheep from the goats, as Jesus tells us in that parable, and the righteous from the unrighteous. And the righteous enter into their inheritance, and they exist in the presence of God. And there's a new Jerusalem, and a new heaven, and a new earth. And there is no opportunity to sin from that day forward. And so there is no more tears. There's no more crying. That's all what Tabernacles is about. It helps us to remember there's a day coming when God's going to right all the wrongs. 
But before he could ever right all the wrongs, there has to be an atonement for our sin. And that's what we're studying here in the Gospel of John. If you remember last week, we were actually talking about Jesus being before the high priest. And John kind of left us with a conundrum that he wanted us to really find ourselves asking a question. And that is, who is the high priest? Because it starts with Annas, and then it talks with about this guy whose name is Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is the high priest that year. And so you're sitting there going, well, who is the high priest? And that's a great question. Because truly, Annas was the high priest because he was appointed from the law of Moses by God in the sense of that's the system that God created. And he was the one who was from that family, and he was the one who was a serve. And a high priest serves for his entire life. It's a lifetime appointment. So that's what he was supposed to be doing. But Rome didn't like Annas. They found him very difficult to deal with. They found him obstinate. And so they deposed him from the role of high priest, and they appointed someone they liked better, which was Caiaphas. So Caiaphas was Rome's high priest, but Annas was the high priest of Israel. So the Israelites saw Annas as the high priest and not Caiaphas, and Rome saw Caiaphas as the high priest and not Annas, which you sit there and you read this and you're like, well, who really is the high priest? And that's exactly where John wants you to be because John wants you to read the passage and go, you know what? Jesus actually fits the role of high priest better than either of these two. And so while there is this controversy, what a great place for Jesus to step in and fulfill that role. And the writer of Hebrews even tells us he spends great length of time talking about the fact that Jesus is a better high priest. And he says that he's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, if you go back and find Melchizedek in the Bible, then you go all the way back to Genesis and you find that Melchizedek and his priesthood predates Leviticus, predates the Exodus. It goes all the way back to Abraham himself. And so Jesus doesn't fit the Mosaic rules for a high priest because you had to be from the tribe of Levi and specifically from the family of Aaron. Jesus isn't. He's from the tribe of Judah. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says that he has a longer lasting or a predating high priesthood, and that is from the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the one, if you remember, when Abraham finds out that these ten kings that had aligned themselves together had come down and they had defeated Sodom and Gomorrah, and his nephew lived there, and they took him captive. They called the people captive and took all their plunder. Well, Abraham goes out and fights them, and he defeats these ten kings from the north, and so much so they just dropped their stuff and ran. And so Abraham frees the people. He gathers the plunder. He's bringing all this back. And he runs across this guy by the name of Melchizedek, whose name is the king of Salem. So Melchizedek, meaning king of righteousness, and he's the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. So here's the king of righteousness and the king of peace who approaches Abraham. And Abraham immediately recognizes something so significant about him that he gives him 10% of everything that he has. And Melchizedek serves Abraham wine and bread. Again, what a beautiful picture of what was to be foreshadowed, what we would see in the gospel with Jesus serving bread and wine to his disciples is a picture of that as well. And so again, you see this beautiful picture unfolding of Jesus fulfilling all of these things that were foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And John is highlighting them one after another. Well, we now find ourselves looking at Pilate. Because he's gone before Annas, and Annas was like, I can get him in a conundrum. If I can get him caught, if I can trip him up in his words, then I'll have him exactly where I want him. And he couldn't. And, and we're even left thinking, who's on trial here? I, th I thought Jesus was on trial, but all of a sudden, Jesus is the one asking the questions. And Jesus is the one 
establishing the rules, and Jesus is the one calling them out, not them calling him out. Because the Jews prided themselves on one thing, and that was in a time in the ancient Near East where you could not find a place where you could get a fair trial, the Jews prided themselves on we, our law, the law of Moses, does provide for a fair trial. Not only that, it puts the advantage in the court of the one who is accused, not in the accuser. Now, everywhere else in the ancient world, the advantage was to the one who was accusing because usually it was the state or it was the powerful or it was the wealthy, and they had all the advantages. But in the law of Moses, it actually gave the advantage to the one accused to the point that they said, you know what? All trials have to happen out in the open. They have to happen in the daytime where there's people around, and it happens in open air, not in a courtroom, but open air where everyone can hear what's being said. And the burden of proof is on the one making the accusation, not the one who is accused. Therefore, the one who is accused has to say nothing at all. And the one who's making the accusation has to provide witnesses to substantiate and confirm the accusations that they're making. And you're never, ever allowed to ask leading questions of any witness. Okay? Do you see what's wrong with the trial that we saw last week? Um, it was happening in the middle of the night. It was happening in a secret place where even Peter had to get access to it because it was closed off. Um, there were no witnesses provided. They asked leading questions of Jesus, and Jesus was expected to defend himself. Every single bit of that goes against Jewish law. Okay? Not only that, but it, it sets up this beautiful picture of what Jesus says in response. Because they said, now, what have you said about this? Are you really a king? Do you think that you're God? And Jesus said, everything I've said, I've said out in the open. I've said it in the synagogues, and I've said it in the temple." Now, of course, Jesus taught in other places, but the beauty of that and what he was emphasizing was, I taught in the places that are your domain. Did you, in all of these years that I've been teaching, not ever care enough to come and listen for yourself what I was teaching in your domain? You completely were dependent upon what other people said. You never came and listened for yourself. I want you to remember that because that plays into exactly what he says to Pilate as well. So let's jump into this trial before Pilate. Chapter 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Okay, so at this point in the story, the Jews want Jesus dead. Matter of fact, they've wanted that for a long time. I think you can go several chapters back where Caiaphas makes this statement where he says, hey, it's better for one man to die than to lose the whole nation. And from that moment on, they were trying to find an opportunity to kill Jesus. So they want him dead. They've wanted him dead for a while. Now, Jesus has been taken to the praetorium. Now, this is where Pilate lives when he's in Jerusalem. And I say when he's in Jerusalem because Pilate was rarely ever in Jerusalem. Pilate hated Jerusalem. He hated being there. He despised Jerusalem. Jerusalem was like a cesspool of problems for him. Matter of fact, he spent most of his time away from Jerusalem. But whenever he did come to Jerusalem and have to handle any of the business affairs that he was involved in, he would stay at the Praetorium, which has a residence for him and his wife. Now, here's the thing. He was in charge of, number one, keeping order in Jerusalem and in Judea, and number two, collecting taxes. 
Okay? So that was usually the only time that he came was to make sure that everything was in order. So if there was any kind of uprising, he had to go to Jerusalem and handle it. And he would go during tax time to make sure all the taxes came into the Roman coffers. Now, here's what's interesting. You find Pilate usually always in Jerusalem at Passover. You know why? Because that's when you always had problems. There was always someone revolting, always someone causing a problem, always some kind of uprising. So Pilate finds himself always having to go back to Jerusalem during Passover. So he hated Passover. He hated Jerusalem. And he hated having to deal with these problems over and over and over again. So you have to understand a little bit about Pilate's background to understand the story that John is giving us, in particular, this conversation that he's having with Jesus. Number one, Pilate had a very difficult job trying to keep order in this place. Um, he was always dealing with the Essenes and with the Zealots. These are groups that had these, these visions of, these messianic visions of a kingdom coming and God doing what he did for them while they were in Egypt. There was going to be a Messiah who would come and he would rise up and everyone would rise up with him and they would be able to dispel the Romans out of the Holy Land and they would be able to have their own. So there were all these Messiahs that would start popping up during Passover because this guy was saying, oh, God sent me to do this and oh, God sent me to do that and God's calling us and let's fight, let's fight, let's fight. And so he was always having to kind of push those rebellions back and stop those uprisings from happening. So it was a very difficult thing that he was called to do because there were all these factions that were always wanting to do it. And Passover, again, like we said earlier, was an especially difficult time for him, which is why he's in Jerusalem during this time in our passage. Now, even though it would seem that Pilate had some aspect of power, some, some aspect of authority, the truth is he was, at this time, at a very difficult period in his life. Um, he was very much undermined by the Jews in the sense that the high priest family was very wealthy and very influential. And he would make laws or pass edicts that were supposed to be followed by the Jewish people. Well, the high priest family would come in and they would say, no, you don't have to do that. And if there was any problem from Pilate, then they would just go to Herod and they would pay him off. And Herod would then come in and say, oh no, y'all don't have to do that at all. And it would undermine Pilate's authority again. We know of at least three times of things like that happening. So Pilate's authority was always being undermined either by Herod or either by the high priest and his family or the Sanhedrin, which was a very well-organized group of people. He was always undermined by what was happening around him, the culture, the people that he was dealing with. And this caused him so much angst that he didn't, ex he didn't actually last too much longer after this. Matter of fact, what we know from Pilate's life, and we don't know a whole lot, but it seems that three years after this, he committed suicide at his next appointment and he lived no longer. We don't know if it was because of what was happening here or his career was on a downward trajectory, but that's what seems to happen within three years of Jesus being crucified and him overseeing this whole thing. Now, all that to say, that's the situation that Pilate finds himself in. He's trying to exert some authority, yet it seems like every time he gets two rings up on this ladder, something comes along and knocks him down three or four rings on that whole thing. So he finds himself trying to get up only to be knocked down, trying to get up only to be knocked down. Can anybody relate to that? 
Yeah, I mean, you, a lot of us, I think, can relate to Pilate's experience. Have you ever been in a situation where you've tried to make some things happen and you're trying to do the right thing, in other words, in your own mind, and you're saying, hey, I've got to do this to succeed and I've got to do this to get ahead. And then right when you get ahead, something happens and it knocks you down a little bit further and you're like, am I ever going to get anywhere in life? This is where Pilate finds himself. Now, when these people come to him in the middle of the night, I want you to know that Pilate was not at all excited about this. When he hears the knock in the middle of the night, he said, oh no, that's those crazy Jews. I already know it. And so he wakes up in the middle of the night, he walks off, and sure enough, there are these Jews out there. These are the religious leaders or at least some party that they've sent to represent them. He would have been immediately suspicious. And he's probably also reminded, this is why I hate my job so much right here. And so I want you to not miss the significance of this. These Jews who have been unable to pin Jesus into the corner now are turning to the Gentiles to do their dirty work. Why? They say, we don't have the authority to put a man to death. That's what you're going to see in this next verse that we're about to read. They're going, well, we don't have the authority to do this. And the truth is, that's not exactly true. We'll see that in a minute. The judge is sitting here in this situation and this judge, being the high priest, has broken every aspect of their law. Now, all of a sudden, he has this great concern for the law. Not only does he have a great concern with not overstepping their bounds and, and overstepping Rome and their control over Judea, but also, you know, we have to eat Passover here in just a little while. And for us to walk into the praetorium, well, that would make us unclean. And that would make us unfit to eat the Passover meal. Do you see how they just the, the stench of religiosity is all around them. I mean, literally, they use the law to their advantage whenever they can. If it's something that can make them get out of something, that's what they use it for. If it's something that they can manipulate and twist and ignore to get what they want over here, then they do that. The law is not something that oversees them. The law has become something they oversee. And they use it to their advantage to get what they want. And here is the dilemma. Religion always causes that problem. Very easily we can slip into a place when we are religious, that we use the religion to benefit ourselves. That we use the religion to say, look how righteous I am because I keep this and I keep this and I keep this. But over here we ignore this and we ignore this and we ignore this. It is really the condemnation that scripture gives over and over to the Jewish people. You respect these high aspects of the law, but in these other aspects of the law, you completely ignore what God has told you to do. And you think these are so important, but these are the things that I care about. Take care of the widows, the orphans, the marginalized among you. And yet you are very religious at your festivals and your celebrations. And yet you neglect the weightier aspects of the law. See, when you become religious, it's not the law over you. It's you over the law. You use the law to make yourself look better. You use the law to get what you want. You use the law to condemn who you want to condemn. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's our culture. When you go to any religious institution, and I'm not saying they're all bad, but I'm saying they all have the potential to create evil. And they do. Because whenever we create an evil person that is very religious, they're always out there trying to manipulate, trying to control people, trying to gain power, and trying to usually benefit 
incentivize and, let's be honest, make themselves more wealthy and more powerful. That is the situation that we find even here. Now, they are worried about breaking this law, so they stay on the outside. So what you see in these religious leaders is really a danger that we all have in religion. Notice here that their ambition was to drop Jesus off at Pilate's residence so that they could have their evil done by someone else, so that they could remain clean. Now, they sought to keep clean through the law instead of accepting what God had sent them to make them clean. Do you see this? They missed the Passover lamb right in front of them so that they could go and eat of a literal Passover lamb. Forgetting that the literal Passover lamb was just a foreshadowing that God told them a long time ago. This is something I want you to celebrate because I'm going to send you a lamb. It goes all the way back to Abraham when he was walking up with Isaac. And Isaac said, Dad, I see the wood for the sacrifice, but where is the sacrifice? And he said to his son, who God had said he's going to be the sacrifice, he said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the sacrifice. And, of course, we know in that story God didn't provide a lamb. He provided a ram. And the lamb wasn't going to come until later. And we see the opening of the New Testament where John the Baptist says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lamb that was promised to Abraham that he was talking about. The lamb that was the figurative Passover lamb that they would literally celebrate year after year. They had become so religious that they loved their celebrations more than they understood what the celebrations pointed to. Does that sound familiar? I mean, how many times at Christmas do you actually really talk about the kingdom of God? Maybe some of you, you read the story and you're thankful for God sending the gift. And we do those things. Maybe we go to a, a uh, play at a church or we go and listen to a choir sing. Or maybe we watch that one movie that kind of focuses in on that. But I would say, and, you know, it's not far off. What are we, October 4th today? In about 20 days, you're going to start hearing Christmas music at every place that you shop, okay? As soon as the witches and the pumpkins come down, you're going to hear that Christmas music kick in, okay? And you're going to see all those decorations go up. And for really two months, you're going to hear that. And they're going to be hitting at you over and over again. And I would say of those two months, our focus is rarely on the kingdom of God. And it's more on the kingdom of earth. It's rarely on the eternal. And it's really focused on the material. The temptation is always, always there. They wanted to be clean through the law instead of be clean through God's intentions. What we see here is that the free, the ones who are free in this picture, are actually bound. And what we see is the one who's bound is truly the one who's free. One is bound by the law. Oh, we got to do this and we can't do that. And we have to operate by this. and We have to use this for our advantage. The law factors into everything. And yet the other one is the one who's free, who's come to fulfill the law so that it doesn't bind us anymore. He came to be the atoning sacrifice. Look at what it says in verse 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. You can see how meek they are in that moment. Oh, 
It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show about what kind of death he was going to die. Again, this relates to the fact that the Jews could have stoned Jesus, okay? And and that's true, absolutely. They say that our law does not allow for us to kill the man, but yes, it actually does. Their law both allows it and they did it all the time. It's not long after this moment right here that they're going to oversee the stoning of Stephen. They did not get Roman permission to do that. They did it themselves. Matter of fact, we know from their history, they carried out stonings over and over and over again. And Rome would just look the other way. Why? Because Rome don't want to have to deal with that mess. Sure, you take care of that. You take care of your own problems. As long as you're not having any uprisings and insurrections, we're fine with that. Okay? You handle those things. And in essence, that's what Pilate says. Listen, I'm not going to do your dirty work. You handle it. And then he's like, oh, no, we can't handle that. Wow, we're not allowed. Our, the law does not allow for us to put a man to death. Well, now all of a sudden the law is something they're using again to their advantage. And so here we have these devoted Jewish followers, especially during Passover, and they want the Romans to be the bad guys. And truly, Caiaphas and Annas, they want Jesus dead. Okay? Here's the thing I want you to see about this passage. And again, John has given us this view of the sovereignty of God. Annas and Caiaphas want Jesus dead so bad, but they can't kill him themselves. Why? Because they know if they were to stone him, that he has enough following that they're going to cause this uprising, which Rome does pay attention to. So if they kill him, then there's no way that they can actually make it okay because Rome's going to come against them. They're going to lose some of their power. And so they're like, well, we can't stone him. We've got to get Rome to kill him. So Annas and Caiaphas want Jesus dead, but they can't kill him. So they hand him over to Rome. And what do you see in this passage and what we're going to see in the passages to come in the following weeks is that Pilate does not want to kill Jesus. He doesn't want to do it. He tries every aspect, every road possible to not do it. And he ends up doing it. What's the picture that John's trying to show us? God is sovereign. Man is not in control. They want Jesus dead, and they can't kill him. He doesn't want Jesus dead, and he can't stop from handing him the death sentence. Why? Because this is God's will unfolding, not man's will. And John wants us to see that even in the dark hour, God's will is unfolding. Let me just tell you something. I want you to take hope in that. I want you to take heart in that. That in what we would say is the darkest hour in Scripture is actually the most beautiful picture of the unfolding of the will of God that you see in all of Scripture. And I want you to just know that in your dark hour, in the darkness that you walk in, God is still in control. It may seem insurmounting. It may seem dark. It may seem deep. It may seem very depressing. But I want you to know that even in the darkness, God is just as fully in control than he is when it seems like things make sense to you. And that's what John wants you to see. That's what he wants you to take from this. Whatever it is that you struggle with, whatever it is you're going through, whatever battle it is, it just seems like it just keeps coming. And where is God in this? He's right there. He's in the middle of it. Have a conversation with him even as you walk through the darkness. Why? Because it's not always going to be like this. On the other side, these things are going to make sense. When we see him face to face, we will know in full just as we have been fully known. God is in control. In this picture, Jesus is in full control. It's not Annas. It's not Caiaphas. 
It's not Pilate. God is sovereign. So John wants us as the readers of his gospel, he's saying to us, look at this. Here is Christ holding court against Annas and Caiaphas, holding their feet to the fire. Look at this. It's Christ who is standing over Pilate. He's the one who's making provisions for all who would come to him. Pilate was not an innocent man. Okay, this was a man who made many blunders in the past few years. He was incredulous in the way that he would deal with the Jewish people oftentimes. Come marching in with a picture of Tiberius and come marching in towards the temple. I mean, they took great offense to that. He would put um, these different uh, pictures and icons of Rome in these places that he was just insensitive to what they believed and how they felt. And so there was always this angst between him and them as well. There was one time where he sent, there was this uprising and he sent his people in clothed like the Jewish people in the middle of their celebration. And in the middle of their celebration, they all pulled out daggers and swords and started killing the people around them. That was Pilate who was doing that. You know why? Because that's the way he, he learned to handle things. So there wasn't like this love relationship that they had. There was definitely this hatred that they had towards one another. And Pilate finds himself in this very difficult situation that both the Jews and his place in Rome has put him in. But that's not all it is. There was another aspect of it that I think made it even more difficult for Pilate. John doesn't tell us about it, but Matthew does. Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, Pilate's wife after she has been woken up in the middle of the night with Pilate, because they're both staying there, and she probably knows why the Jews are outside, she falls back asleep, and all of a sudden she has this dream. And then she tells Pilate about it. Verse 19, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So now Pilate finds himself going, okay, I've got to factor that into this whole thing. I mean, it was just the Jews and Rome, and how do I handle this? But now my wife, all of a sudden, she's had this dream, and she sees something here that's not physical, but it's spiritual. So now, all of a sudden, Pilate finds himself in between the physical and the spiritual, and he doesn't know how to handle this. Do you see this happening? And I don't know exactly when Pilate found out about the dream. I don't know if it was, the, the scriptures tell us there's three times that Pilate walks out to the people and then walks back in to Jesus and then walks back out to the people and then walks back in and has a conversation with Jesus and then walks back out to the people. There's three times that he does that. And there's a time that he sends Jesus away to Herod and Herod beats him and makes fun of him and says, oh, it's your problem. And he sends him back. And that's the last time that Pilate has to deal with him. John doesn't tell us about all of those situations, but when we put the Gospels together, we know that all of those took place. So we don't know exactly when Pilate found out about his wife's dream, but we know that at some point, Pilate began to have to factor this in to his judgment of Jesus. Now, here's a man who now is caught between two worlds, the material and the spiritual, and he finds himself caught it's interesting. It's not caught between Rome and Israel. Now it's much deeper. He's caught between the spiritual and the physical. And this became even more amplified when Jesus turns to him and says what he says next in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, as you read this in our English Bibles, you are tempted to read this as a question. Like, are you the king of the Jews? Maybe it's a leading question. Are you the king of the Jews? Say yes, because it makes it easier for me. Or, you know, what's going on here? 
But here's the thing. When you understand the original language, you understand the you is emphatic. And it's emphatic in every single one of the gospels, consistent. So it's more like this. Are you the king of the Jews? That's what Pilate says there. And the reason he says that is this. He's sitting there looking at these powerful men that are out there dressed in all their robes and their garb and their power and their money and their stature and their status. And he's looking at this guy going, where are you even from? Who are you? I don't even know who you are. And here you are, dirty. You've been in a garden all night. You got blood. Where did that come from? Sweats of blood. Sweats, drops of blood. Been praying all night long. And, and you're sitting here bound. You're cuffed. And somehow I'm supposed to believe that you have convinced a whole bunch of people out there that you're the king of the Jews and that this all of a sudden has become a problem. Really? You are the king of the Jews? Look at how it continues in verse 34. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Now, I want you to not miss what happened there. Do you remember what Jesus did with the Pharisee or with the um, religious leaders? with Annas and Caiaphas. He said to them, oh, I preached in your synagogues and I preached in your temple. Um, do you not know what I said there? Are you not familiar with that? Oh, you mean I came and taught in your domain for the last three years and you never heard me yourself? You mean you never cared enough to come and listen? That everything you know about me is because you heard it from someone else? And now all of a sudden he says to Pilate, when he knows Pilate's being facetious, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus turns it back on him and says, are you saying that because you believe it? Or are you saying that because someone else told you? What is he getting to the heart of here? Here's what he's getting to. He's saying, why do you believe what you believe? Do you believe what you believe because you have come and listened and you've heard and you've examined and you've questioned and you've conversed and you've come to conclusions? Or do you believe what you believe because someone else told you? John wants you and I to reflect on that same question. Do you believe that Jesus really is the Messiah? And if you say yes, the next question is, do you believe that because you believe it? Or do you believe that because somebody else told you that? And what's at the root of that, the base of that is this. Are you just a religious person who believes what you believe because your grandmother, because your parents, because someone you respected told you, hey, these things are true and you should believe these. This is who Jesus was and this is what Jesus did and this is what you should believe about Jesus. But yet in your life, you've never gone to Jesus personally. You don't have a relationship with him where you talk with him and you listen and you pray and you've grown in your understanding of him. Is what you believe about Jesus more determined by what somebody else says or by what you've experienced yourself? Now, again, there's nothing wrong with coming to a place like this and, and listening to teaching. There's nothing wrong with finding your favorite pastor on, on, on the Internet, you know, when you can't be here. And you listen to what they say on the Internet. That was a little bit of a joke. Some of you all get it later. But um, whenever you listen to teaching, that's great that it, that it feeds your soul. But at some point, it can't be everything you believe is just what someone else has said. At some point, it has to be ratified in your relationship with God. And that's ultimately what Jesus says. You make these accusations about me, but you've never even 
asked me. You've never talked to me. You've never even heard what I had to say. You won't listen. And ultimately, that's what he says to Pilate. You won't listen to what's happening. Your wife is having a dream. God is speaking to her. Will you listen? You're not going to listen. You're not going to listen to anything that's being said. And ultimately, you see that towards the end of this passage, and we'll see that in just a moment. Look at verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now, I want you to understand before we jump into the meaning of this verse that God's economy is very different than human economy, right? In other words, what God values is very different than what we value as humans. And the scripture is replete with these examples. The weak are strong, but the strong are weak. That's what the scripture says. The proud are going to be humble, and the humbled will be lifted up. The wise are foolish. The foolish are wise. And here in this picture that John gives us, we have the accused holding trial over the accusers, showing power over them, asking them the questions, searching their souls. And in verse 35, notice that Pilate avoids the question altogether. He doesn't say. Who is in charge here seems to be how he challenges or push backs, push back, pushes back against Jesus and what he says right here. Um, he's clarifying who's really in charge here. In essence, he's saying, listen, your Jewish religious leaders, they brought you to me. In another gospel, he says, do you not realize that I have the power to let you go or to have you killed? Which Jesus responds, you don't have any power at all. The only power you have is the power that my father gives to you. In essence, Pilate's throwing up a smokescreen here, and Jesus will have nothing of it. Instead, what he does is he goes right to the issue of Pilate's perspective and his own. Look at verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Again, you have like a little chiasm here. He starts off, my kingdom's not of this world, and he leads you into the middle, my kingdom's not of this world. And the focus is there in the middle is what are you really fighting for? What do you fight for? In essence, what Jesus says is this. I am a king, but I'm not a physical king. Because physical kingdoms always come to an end, I'm the king of an eternal kingdom. And so I fight in a spiritual realm, not in a physical realm. As a spiritual king, I am leading an insurrection. But I'm not leading an insurrection against Rome. I'm leading an insurrection against a far greater enemy. The weapons of my warfare are not swords and spears. It is a spiritual power that comes from my reign as a sovereign and eternal king. What kind of king are you? I am the king of truth. I am a king over a greater domain. I am leading an insurrection over a greater enemy. I am in control. Jesus has already demonstrated this in the garden, hasn't he? When they came to arrest him. They said, who have you come to arrest? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. <laughs> they all fall down. Which is the picture of what? No one's going to arrest him unless he, unless he lets them. He has power over all of them. 
Jesus' answer makes things even more difficult for Pilate. If Jesus would have just proclaimed himself as an earthly king, Pilate's decision would have been easy. Execution. He is an enemy of Rome. He's trying to thwart the emperor. But a spiritual king? Well, politically, Jesus isn't guilty of anything. And spiritually, what if his wife is right? What if that dream was real? What if there is this other, more powerful, supernatural being, maybe let's call it God, that is speaking to me through her and warning me about what I'm actually up against here? Now, Pilate's dealt with the physical problems his whole life, but he's never found himself in between the physical and the spiritual. What a contrast. Jesus, the spiritual king, and Pilate, the material king. Ultimately, two completely different approaches to life are highlighted and revealed to us here in the Gospel of John. One would do anything to receive power and honor and glory, whatever it takes to keep climbing this ladder. The other gave up his glory to become a servant and a slave and a sacrifice. One valued only what he could touch, taste, and feel. If it's not material, it's not real. The other lived and taught that we're not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth because those things waste away. They can be stolen. Someone can come and knock you down that ring. And what if your whole identity and your worth and your value is based on where you are on that ladder? And then someone comes and knocks you down. What are you worth now? Don't lay up your treasures. Don't find your value system in things that are material. One ruled by material manipulation. Pilate, even the religious leaders, they ruled by material manipulation. You know what I mean by that, right? If I want you to do something, all I do is give you stuff. And if I can give you stuff, then I can get out of you what I want. Now, let me just tell you, that's the way men rule. And women sometimes, no offense to you women. But if you look at the political systems that we have here, I know that we live in a very divided culture where we're like, oh, there's this group and oh, there's this group. But let me just tell you that both groups rule by manipulation. Now, again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't get out there and vote. I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote according to your convictions, that you shouldn't search scripture and find out what God says is important and true. And you know what? Going into there and voting for the lesser of two evils. I don't know what that is for you. But you need to search the scripture and you need to find what God's calling you to do. You do have a responsibility as an American to vote. What I'm warning you against is voting because of what you think you get from those people. Because what they will do is rule by manipulation. They will say, if you vote us in and we're in control, we will give you this and we will give you that and we'll provide you with this. And my question to you is, do they really provide those things? Do they really give that to you? Or is maybe the reason that you never actually get it is because if you actually get it, they don't have anything to reel you in with anymore. And so it's this elaborate scheme of always offering and giving just a little taste, a little touch, but always having these promises that if you keep me in power, I will do this for you and for you and for you, and I'll give you and I'll give you. Remember Jesus when he was feeding the 5,000? And afterwards, they were ready to hail him as king? And ultimately, he has this conversation. It boils down to this. Jesus says, you know what? The only reason that you're ready to hail me as king 
is because I fed you bread and you're just waiting for the next meal for me to feed you again. And you know what? As soon as I don't feed you, you're gone. Why? You're only following me because of what I'm providing for you materially. But listen to me. You need much more than bread. And you know what happens when Jesus said that to him? Scripture says many turned and walked away. Jesus never ruled by manipulation. He was always honest. He was up front. And he was telling people what their real need was. And he was always warning them about becoming addicted to the things of this world, the material possessions and value and finding your identity in things in this life because they're fleeting, they're brief, and ultimately they can destroy you. Look what it says in verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, what does he say? Listens to my voice. How do you find eternal life? Listen. How do you find the answers to the darkness that you're walking through? How do you find the energy? How do you find the courage to continue to walk? You have to listen. How do you find the wisdom that you need to understand the decisions that you have to make? You have to listen. And it's not listening to all these voices in the world. It's listening to the one who's going to be honest with you, truthful with you, and has your best interest in mind, not going to play games with you, not going to manipulate you, but it's going to tell you the truth. Christ came to bring the kingdom of God. He came as truth, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who hears this truth, he says, finds life. Jesus calls this materialistic world that we live in to embrace an eternal kingdom and to let go of our materialism. Even so, we think our greatest need is money, so we're always looking for an economic savior. Let me just tell you, that's the temptation that we find in every election. That's the temptation we find whenever you're voting for anything. It could be homeowners association, but whenever you're voting someone in, you're always tempted to go, who's going to benefit my pocket the most? And that's when you know you're living for a temporary world for a fleeting moment of having a little bit of a material possession. You've traded the eternal for the short-lived physical. It's like the people in this story, whether it's the religious or whether it's the Gentiles, they would rather have a materialistic savior. They would rather have a savior who comes in and provides them a substantial Roman 
you know, or not a Roman, but a, a substantial Messiah who will push out the Romans. We want a leader. We want a military leader who will show up in, in physical fashion and help us to take our swords and our clubs and go and push that other group of people out. We want something physical. We see it in our culture today. That's why we have riots and we have insurrections throughout the world and even in our own nation. It's because we think that we want something and it's so important. We'll take it by force. Jesus says, you can if you want to. It'll be temporary. You might take it, but it'll only last a little while. Because whenever you take things by force, you know what you make? Enemies. And it doesn't take long for those enemies to regroup and for you to lower your guard for a moment. And boom, if you thought it was bad before, it's going to be worse the next time. And we can constantly find ourselves in this pull for power. Or we can believe what Jesus says. God is not your genie. God is not here to give you what you want. I want you to think about this for a moment. So I know that's hard for many of you to believe, but I used to go to a barber shop. And I used to go as a child, and I would go and get my hair cut. And it was not far. It was right up here on Azalea Road, not far past Cottage Hill Road. And there was this little barber shop my dad went to, and I went to. He'd take me. I would always go with him. And there was a gumball machine in there. And the barber would always give you a little penny. And he would give you that penny, and he'd let you go and get your little gumball. It was one of the old-timey gumball machines. And so you would go and get the penny. you put it in there. you turn the little thing, and the little gumball comes out. Well, one day, I was a little kid put the little penny in there, and I turned it, and I heard something go, Kling, but nothing ever came out. So I kind of looked, and I studied it, and looked at it, and I could hear the barber go, you just got to slap it a little bit. It'll come out. I was like, all right. So I slapped that gumball machine, and boom, sure enough, it came out. And I remembered that. And so from that point on, whenever it didn't give me what I wanted, I would just slap that thing, and of course, it would come out after that. Now, that may be a really bad illustration, but I do think that sometimes we treat God like a candy machine or a gumball machine. You know, we do what we're supposed to do. We give him what we think he wants, and we expect to get what we want. And when we don't get what we want, we just slap him until we get what we want. Now, our slapping looks different, right? It looks more like, I'm not going to be as faithful. I'm not going to do what you want me to do if I don't have the opportunity Or you're not going to do for me what I want you to do. I'm not going to do for you what you want to do. If you're not going to be my kind of savior, I'm not going to be your kind of follower. And ultimately, that's the problem that we find here. Look how this continues in verse 38. Look what Pilate says next. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now, I believe Pilate is sincere in his question, but too deep in materialism to hear anything other than a definition that really has already been given about his life. You see this? Pilate is one, I believe, that in this story, he exemplifies modern man. What I mean by that is whenever you look at modern man and you understand the cry of this culture, the cry of this world, there are consistencies that we find that man is always trying to achieve. In other words, no matter what culture you go to, I don't know if you're ever in a part of missions, foreign missions, where you go somewhere else and you, uh, you know, are able to serve the kingdom of God. But when you go to these places, you find that the cultures, even though they're very different on some aspects, they're very much the same on others. The things 
things that people are trying to accomplish, the things that people are trying to achieve are very, very similar. In other words, the things that men and women are after and chasing, these things are very similar from culture to culture. Why? Because I think that there is something in the human heart that desires to find value in this life and to find value in the things of this life. I want to give you an example, and I think it's a fascinating example. When I heard this, it's always stuck with me. But it was about the building of the Panama Canal. I don't know how many of you know about the history of the Panama Canal. But whenever we figured out, hey, we could cut a little section out of Central America, and we can begin to send our ships through there, we won't have to go all the way to the bottom of you know, South America, and it would cut off a whole lot of time for these shipping, shipping industries. So what we did was we were going to go down there, and we were going to build the Panama Canal in between there, which were these different locking channels. The ships come in, one would rise, and it would let the next one go, and they would just kind of get them all the way through and then put them into the Pacific Ocean. Now, here's the problem they did, or they came up against, was they said, you know what, we really can't take Americans down there. It's not going to be cost effective to take a whole bunch of Americans down there because we'd have to house them, we'd have to feed them because there's not like this developed civilization there. At least at that time, there was not. And so they said, we're going to have to use the people from Panama to build the Panama Canal. So they started putting up flyers and sending people into the community saying, hey, if you want a job, come and work. We'll show you what to do. We just need you to come. We need some laborers. So they would show up. And when they came and they started working, they got their paycheck every two weeks. And what they found was in two weeks, everybody quit. And they would have to find a whole other group of people. And when they got that group of people in, they would work for two weeks, get their paycheck, and they would quit. And they started figuring out, what in the world's going on? Why does everybody quit? Is it too hard of work? And it was not hard work at all. What they found was their paycheck from two weeks was more than they made in five years. So they thought, we're rich. We don't need to work anymore. And they were like, well, how in the world are we going to do this? Because we need to keep these workers on. So here's what one guy came up with, and this was the solution to their problems, and it worked beautifully. From that point on, whenever one of the locals got their paycheck, they also handed them a Sears and Roebuck catalog. And they said, you know what? With your paycheck, after you've taken care of your family and you've taken care of what you eat, here's all the things you can have. Did you know they never had another person quit after that again? but they made a bunch of materialists out of all those people. Why? Because they begin to look at what's there. They begin to look at, at what's in that, that magazine. And what they would do is they would eventually begin to see all the things that they could have if they just kept working and kept working and kept working and kept working. And here's the thing. They had an opportunity and a choice to make. Many of us were born into that world. And from the time that you're little, what are you going to do when you grow up? Uh, I'm going to be a teacher. Don't be a teacher. They don't make a whole lot of money. Be a lawyer. Be a doctor. How many times have you heard a parent say that? I mean, I say to my kids, don't be a preacher, okay? Um, you know, <laughs> be something. I'm just kidding. They could be preachers. I think it would be great if they would become preachers. But um, I think I cleared that up. But anyway, you know that saying that people always say all the time, right? Hey, I want you to do something significant with your life. I want you to be able to take care of yourself. I want you to be able to provide for your family. We are born into this materialistic world as if somehow that is what makes you happy. That's what makes you significant. I want you to look again. I want to leave you with this before we go into the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. 
but my kingdom is not of this world. What's at the center of that? Fighting. And the question I think that he wants to leave us with is this. What are you fighting for? What are you fighting for in this life? Because whatever you answer that question with, that's what your heart is focused on. What is it that boils your blood more than anything? What is it that gets you irate? What is it that gets you mad? What is it that gets you in a fighting mood? If it's anything but the kingdom of God advancing or evil winning in our society, if it's anything other than the spiritual things, that's where John wants us to go. Have we given over to the physical? Now, again, I'm not saying that you're never going to get mad at anything that happens around you, but I think you know what I'm saying. Fighting, passion, what drives you. What is that? And what is that a picture of what your heart longs for? Ultimately, what Jesus says here, look at what Pilate says at the end. The very last verse that we've looked at here today. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he did what? Went back out to the Jews. Don't miss what John's highlighting. He asked the right question but he's still not willing to listen. He's still going to go out and handle things in his own manner. He asked the right question, and if he had stayed just a little bit longer and listened just a little bit more, then maybe he would have heard the words that could have set his soul free. But instead, he kept going down the track that his life had directed him in for all the years that he was alive now. He continued to say, you know what? I've been climbing this ladder. I know nothing but this ladder. I'm going to put all my eggs on this ladder. Three years from now, Pilate takes his own life. What is your value system based on? Let's pray together. And as your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and as we go into an attitude of prayer, I just want to set up for us that we're about to take the Lord's Supper. Now, I want you to remember what this symbolizes. The bread is symbolic of Jesus' body. The wine is symbolic of his blood. Now, before you, because of the times we live in, obviously we're not going to have people come forward, um, but you will serve yourself if you're by yourself. That's fine. If you have someone here that's with you, if you're at a table of people that you, you came together and you have no problem serving one another, I would say that that is your best option. It's a bigger picture. Dad, if you're there with the family, serve the family. But remember, this is only for people who are holding nothing back from Christ. In other words, you're a Christian, you've been baptized, you've done everything, you've been obedient to everything that Christ has called you to do up to this point, and you've said to the Lord, Lord, if there's anything offensive in me, show it to me because I want to confess it to you. In other words, there's nothing that you are intentionally holding back from Christ. If that's you, then you are invited to partake of this. The reason that it's so specific is because Jesus held nothing back when he came to be your sacrifice. Therefore, our Commitment to him and loyalty to him should be nothing less than that. I don't want to hold anything back from you. Why? Because of what it's a picture of. You gave your body broken for me so that I could live. Your blood was poured out as a sacrifice for me so that I could live. Now the question is, are you living for the things that he taught us to live for? So before you take this, I want you to really think strongly about these words. I want you to put yourself in this story and find yourself. Are you more like the religious leaders in that you are very religious, but you use religion to your advantage? Or are you more like Pilate 
Are you the one who's trying to work at your best you can? Your value system is based on the things of this world, and you are sold out to materialism, and really you gauge your life on how much you have, or you gauge your failure on how much you don't have? Or are you the one who your life represents what Jesus has said? One who is listening. One who is listening for a call that I'm more than just this physical life and maybe these 80 years that I get. I am more than just the possessions that I have in this life. I am more than just a wisp of air, a vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow. There's something eternal about who I am. And I'm listening to Jesus, and he's calling me to embrace this aspect of my life. He's calling me to embrace the truth that Scripture has called me to, that when I'm weak, I'm strong. When I seem foolish to the world, I'm probably more wise. Are we living by the economy of God? Or are we living by the economy of man? In a moment, we're going to sing. And I just want to tell you that as the Holy Spirit releases you, you take and you serve. And if you don't, there's no shame in that. It'd rather be you be honest and honorable before the Lord than for you to be trying to impress people around you or just following through with some kind of religious ritual. No, this isn't a ritual. This has meaning to it. And don't forsake the meaning that it has. God, you are so good, and your love endures forever. Your love was displayed on the cross through your son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who gave up his body and his blood so that we could be made whole. He became our Passover so that we could eat and drink of the Passover lamb. Lord, as we do this, we truly don't want to eat and drink as the religious leaders did, just out of ceremony. We give up our religiosity. We give up our materialism. And we want to embrace truly what you have for us. We want to embrace the eternal. We want to embrace your kingdom. We want to live for something that outlasts us. And we want to see you one day face to face and know in full and make sense of the dark times and the depression that we walk through. Lord, we know that you will make sense of that and you will let us understand clearly that you were there the whole time, that you never left us, and that it all has purpose and meaning. Lord, it's hard for us to understand, but we embrace it because of who you are. God, may you be honored and glorified in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.